in the providence of God, our next passage in the Gospel of John provides perspective for what we just watched. John chapter 15, verse 18. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I've spoken to you as that, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their, how, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Father, we come to you this morning and we need your help to process uh, the things that we've just seen that are just a small glimpse window really into the persecuted church and what is happening on a daily basis around the world that we're just so uh, shielded from here in America. And yet this is really what it looks like and feels like to be a Christian in the majority of places where Christians live in this, in this world. And so I thank you for just your sweet providence and bringing us to uh, this perfect text uh, in John to address the issue of the persecuted church, and I pray that your spirit now would help us, Lord, as uh, we seek to understand why the world hates us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the past year or so, we've all been watching and reading in the news about the evolution and expansion of ISIS which stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And uh, ISIS has become the most well-known, well-organized, well-funded, and well-armed terrorist group to date. The small but powerful organization of jihadists, and of course jihad means holy war, um, these people, these jihadists, adhere to an extreme anti-Western interpretation of Islam that promotes religious violence, and regards anyone who disagrees with them um, as infidels and apostates. In fact, they're so radical in their beliefs and their practices 
that other extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have kicked them out and condemned them for being so extreme. And so ISIS is, is fighting against their own governments for control of their countries in order to establish an Islamic nation in the Middle East that's run by what's called a caliph, which is a successor of the prophet Muhammad, who would represent Allah himself and uh, fulfill uh, Muhammad's anticipation of a, of a nation or a world where religion and politics would, would be one. In March 2013, they took over the capital city of Syria. It was interesting when we were there in Israel <clears throat> uh, this past May, we were continuing to hear the, the war going on as we were up in the uh, northern part of Israel that borders Syria. We were standing literally on the demilitarized zone and our guide was talking to us about things and we were hearing the bombs and explosions going off in Syria because of that civil war. In January of this year, uh, the ISIS took over the first city in Iraq. In June, they took over the city of Mosul, in Iraq, and IS fighters spray-painted the Arabic letter N, which represents the Arabic word Nasara or Nazarene, i.e. Christian, right? Jesus was a, a Nazarene, um, and, and they spray-painted this on all the homes and businesses of Christians. And that's that image there. Some of you may have already known what that was. Some of you were wondering, what, what is that uh, when you walked in here this morning? But basically what they did was they gave Christians in Mosul an ultimatum. You can either convert to Islam, pay an an extremely high tax, leave the city, or be killed. And so thousands chose to flee Mosul to surrounding countries, like many of the Christians in Syria had to, um, leaving behind everything they owned to find a place where they could live peaceably and share their faith in Christ without fear of Islamic reprisal. However, some Christians in Syria and Iraq both have chosen to stay and continue to be a witness for Christ to their Muslim neighbors, even though it puts their lives and their families at risk. And that video that we watched is is, is a true story of one of those courageous families that chose to stay in Syria. Now, here in America, we don't hear or see these kind of stories on the nightly news, do we? I mean, all we hear about are the political conversations about U.S. interests in the Middle East and how big of a terrorist threat ISIS poses to the American people and the vacuum that was left by what some consider our failed military policy in Iraq and the pros and cons of airstrikes and and ground troops, right? That's what you hear. That's what you see. And you would never know that behind all of this, what appears to many as simply a political war is actually a spiritual war. This is not about terrorism and troops as much as it's about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And ISIS is is specifically targeting Christians in the Middle East and attacking Christian villages and ransacking churches and burning Bibles and, and hymnals and tearing down crosses off of their steeples and using their steeples as sniper positions and, and, and grabbing the bells out of the steeples and, and, and destroying them because they compete with the mosques um, the minarets, all those little towers you see in the Muslim world where they, they, they announce the Muslim call to prayer five times a day. If you've ever been in a Muslim country, it's just the most eerie sound you'll ever hear in your life. But because the bells, right, conflict with that, they, they destroy the Christian bells. 
Now again, while we don't hear or see any of these things on the nightly news, thankfully there are ministries like Voice of the Martyrs and, and Open Doors that, that keep us informed about the plight of our, of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ who, who live and, and minister in countries that are hostile to Christianity. And every year, these ministries encourage churches around the world to set aside a Sunday in November um, to, to honor, to pray for the persecuted church. It's called IDOP, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And for us, who live in the Western world, where we face minimal persecution for our faith in Christ, it's normal and it's natural to want to avoid the unpleasant reality of persecution. It's, it's uncomfortable for us, isn't it? It's even upsetting, it's unnerving, it's, it's disturbing at times to be exposed to, to what's actually going on uh, around the world. But we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be shocked by what we have just seen or, or heard. Why? Because Jesus Christ predicted that his followers would have to endure those kinds of things. They would be ridiculed, scorned, assaulted, arrested, imprisoned, and even killed for the sake of Christ. Listen, if you're a Christian, you should expect to be persecuted for your faith in Christ. Paul said it in Philippians 1.29 that we were called for this purpose. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, Philippians 1.29. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, for indeed when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass as you know. And then Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think that's why the end of that video challenged us to consider if this is what it means to be a Christian in Syria, or is this what it means to be a Christian, period? And while we've all been largely shielded from persecution here in America, we need to realize that we are a small minority of the Christians in the world. 75% of all Christians live in Muslim, Hindu, or communist-controlled nations like Turkey, Indonesia, Nigeria, Ethiopia, India, North Korea, Russia, China, Cuba, Colombia, even in some remote places in Mexico. And it's not uncommon for Christians in these countries to be disowned by their families, to be fired from their jobs, to be run out of their towns or villages, to be kidnapped, beaten, jailed, raped, tortured, subjected to slavery, and even a bounty placed on their head so that their family and friends can hunt them down and kill them for money. But again, these are exactly the kinds of things that, that Jesus said would happen to his followers. Let me just read one uh, verse out of Mark, Mark chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus said, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. 
And so ever since the church has begun, it's been the object of the world's scorn. For the first three centuries, uh, under the Roman empires, Roman, Roman emperors, excuse me, um, to the Middle Ages and the priests and the popes, with the inquisitions and the kings and queens during the Reformation age, uh, followers of Christ have experienced all kinds of persecution, and it's only gotten worse as time goes on. You've heard me say this, uh, I think I say this every year at, uh, on IDOP Sunday, that more Christians have been martyred in the last hundred years than the first 1900 years of the church. So it's only getting worse. The most recent statistic is that somewhere around 100,000 Christians are martyred every year throughout the world. And the simple fact that Jesus predicted persecution should give Christians the strength and courage to endure persecution, no matter how severe it may be. Why? Because we know it's all part of God's plan. He knew ahead of time. We knew ahead of time. And that's why on, on their last night together, before he died, Jesus warned his disciples in the upper room that they would be hated and persecuted by the world. He didn't want them to be surprised. He didn't want them to be disillusioned or disturbed whenever it happened and possibly fall away going, oh, we weren't expecting this. He didn't want them to abandon the faith or the mission that he was about to entrust to them. And that's why he said what he did in verse, chapter 16, verse 1 here, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from what? Stumbling. And verse 4, but these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And so here we're again, we're back in the upper room discourse where Jesus had retreated with his disciples in order to prepare them for what lie ahead. And like the wise godly mother in that video who prepared her children for the persecution that might come, Jesus prepared his disciples for the persecution that would come. And up until this point, if you've been studying the, this uh, book with us, you know that Jesus' words have been full of comfort and full of hope. I mean, he just com- finished commanding them to love each other, right? In chapter, verses 12 through 17, two times he said, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. Well, now we know why it was so important for them to love each other because everyone else in the world would hate them. And so they would need each other. The only love they would get would be from each other. And so what Jesus has been doing here in chapter 15, he's been, he's been instructing his disciples about three vital relationships, uh, their relationship with him in verses 1 through 11, their relationship with each other, verses 12 through 17, and now in the remainder of this chapter, he, he talks about their relationship with the world. And they have some responsibilities. Their responsibility to him is to abide in him. Their responsibility to each other is to love one another, and their responsibility to the world is to witness to the world to be a witness to the world. And so rather than, than hide from them or shield them from the harsh reality of persecution, he clearly laid out for them in order to, to he laid it out what was going to happen to steal them for what they were about to face. 
And Jesus knew that it would help them endure being scorned and rejected if they understood the reasons why they would be so hated. And so to prepare them for the persecution that they would experience in the future, Jesus explained here five reasons why the world hates Christians. Five reasons why the world hates Christians. Number one, association. Association. We are guilty by association. Notice verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus wanted the disciples to know that they should expect to be hated by the world because the world hated him. And the world there, what Jesus was talking about there, is the evil world system made up of unbelievers who are under the control of Satan and are hostile toward God and his people. Back in chapter 14, verse 30, he talks about how Satan is the ruler of the world. And we know that the world hated Jesus from the day that he was born to the day he died. King Herod attempted to kill Jesus when he was still a child. And the Jewish religious leaders scorned and ridiculed and rejected and plotted against Jesus and arrested him and falsely accused him. And then the Roman authorities tortured him and and crucified him on a cross. And after Jesus died, it's not surprising that, that the world's hatred for him naturally shifted was redirected towards his disciples. And you know this to be true, that even today, right, Jesus is still hated. And those who hate him take out their anger and their hostility on the body of Christ, the church. That's what Paul meant when he said in Colossians 1.24, Now I receive in my sufferings for your sake... Or excuse me, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He wasn't implying that something was lacking in what Christ went through on the cross, that we had to fill up. No, he's simply saying that I'm, being, I'm continuing to, to carry out uh, or, or receive the persecutions, the sufferings of Christ in my body, my physical body. We know how Paul was was used and abused by the enemies of the gospel. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now Jesus has already said this to them. He made this statement earlier that night in chapter 13, verse 16, right after he washed their feet, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. And, and he, the reason why he said that previously was he expected them to serve like him. But now he's saying that same thing because he expected them to suffer like him. And up until this point, Jesus had taken the the brunt of the world's hatred and his presence on earth had, had for the most part, shielded and protected his disciples from persecution. He was the one that they were, all the hatred was towards him. He was the one that they were plotting against. He was the one they were trying to kill. In fact, when we'll see in John 18, when he was actually, they came to arrest him, he said, hey, who are you here for? And they said, we're looking for you. He said, okay, let all these guys go. 
Even then, in the garden, he was shielding them, right, from being arrested along with him. But after he went back to heaven, they would feel the the full weight of the world's hatred towards him as his body here on this earth. Chapter 16, verse 4, the last phrase, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. You didn't have to really know about this stuff ahead of time because I was taking all the blows. You haven't felt anything yet, but you're going to feel something in just a little bit. And so as Christ's followers, we shouldn't expect to be treated any differently than Jesus was treated. We we should expect to be rejected and persecuted by the world just like he was. But listen, beloved, don't take persecution personally. Don't take it personally. Because when people persecute you, they're ultimately persecuting Jesus, not you. You remember what Jesus said to Saul on the Damascus Road, when he confronted him with that bright light and knocked him off his horse, and all he heard was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not, why do you persecute Christians? Why do you persecute the church? Why are you persecuting me? And so in some sense, right, while we're guilty by association, man, I'll take a shot for Christ any day, right? What a, what a blessing, what an honor. So the first reason why the world hates Christians is because of association. Number two is separation. Separation, we're set apart from the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. So one of the main reasons why the world hates Christians is because we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Look at what Jesus prayed in John 17. We're going to get here shortly. John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 16, he says it again. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why are we of the world, or excuse me, in the world, but not of the world? Because we have been, what? Chosen. I chose you out of the world. We have been sovereignly selected and and graciously delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his marvelous light. And so the world is no longer our home. We are aliens and strangers who are out of place and out of step, 1 Peter 2.11, The more we're transformed into the image of Christ, the less conformed we become to the world, Romans 12, 2. And as long as a person conforms to the world's values and lifestyles, well, guess what? You'll fit in just fine. But when a person doesn't conform to the ways of the world, they'll inevitably become an object of the world's scorn, and they will be maligned, and they will be persecuted. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having per- pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He said, hey, if you've, had a, you've had your fill of that. You've had enough time to do that. Now that you're saved, right, you need to put all those things away. Verse 4, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Some of you know what that looks like, right? Some of you men who are on business trips and all the guys want to go to the bar or the club after work and you say, I'm going back to my hotel room because I'm not going to participate in what you guys are going to do, right? And you get maybe laughed at, snickered at, you're the Christian guy, right? You're the holier than thou and they they make you, they, they malign you. And so the world hates us because we're, we're set apart from the world. Thirdly, a third reason why the world hates Christians so much is incomprehension. Incomprehension. They're ignorant of the truth. They're ignorant of the truth. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Unbelievers hate Believers, because they don't have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you reject Jesus Christ as God's one and only Son, then you have no way of coming to know God the Father. I mean, you just basically burn your bridge to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that it's not possible to know a lot about God. You can know a whole lot about God and not know God. And that was the problem with the religious leaders of of the day. And this has kind of been a theme here of, of, of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus confronted the, the religious leaders, the, the ones who should have known him, known God. Of course, they claimed to know him, but in John 8, verse 19, it says, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And in that same, same chapter, chapter 8, verse 55, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. In other words, I know him, but you don't. Notice John 16, the passage that we read this morning, John 16, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So Jesus warned his disciples here that eventually 
they would be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogues that had served as their spiritual homes all their lives. That was huge. For a Jew, excommunication was considered the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. We saw that back in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. The parents were being very careful what they said to the religious leaders and answered their, their inquiry about their son and was he really blind and all this kind of stuff. And it says in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And we know that's ultimately happened. That's what happened to the guy, right, who was healed. It says they put him out. They kicked him out of the synagogue. And what Jesus also warned here is, is that there was a day coming when people would honestly believe that they were honoring God by killing Christians. I mean, the Jewish religious leaders sincerely believed they were honoring God by killing a blasphemer. The Apostle Paul, right, before his, his radical conversion on the road to Damascus, was extremely zealous for God, and he imprisoned and he killed Christians believing he was doing the will of God. Muslims today, radical Muslims, are, are killing Christians thinking they are worshiping and honoring God, Allah. And so again, we need to learn from this that it's possible for a person to be very sincere and very zealous, but very misguided and very wrong. Paul himself admitted in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, that he had zeal without knowledge. He was ignorant. Along with the rest of the world, they don't have a clue what they're doing. And we can learn a lot from Jesus' statement when he was hanging on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're, they're, they're ignorant. They have no clue what they're doing. Father, forgive them. I love the fact that that mom taught her children, right, to, to not say anything other than we forgive you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're, they're acting in ignorance. Number four, fourth reason why the world hates Christians is conviction. Conviction. They're, they're convicted of their, of their sin. Look at verse 22. Back in John 15. If, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Jesus was not saying that that all men are not sinners. What he's saying is that all men are sinners, but their sin would not have been nearly as great if they had not heard the words and seen the works of Christ and then rejected them. They're without what? Excuse. Back in John chapter 3, verse 19 Jesus said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. In John chapter 9, verse 41, 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see your sin remains. The point is this, that by his life and his, his words, Jesus rebuked human sin and condemned it. He uncovers the, the, the inner corruption and hypocrisy of our, of our hearts. And, and what do we do? We react violently at the disclosure. He strips away all the excuses and it exposes all the selfishness and all of the rebellion against God in men's hearts. It's like the illustration I used in, in John chapter 3 that, right, there's a room full of people in the, in the complete dark, right, just sinning and doing all sorts of things and somebody shows up and flicks the light switch on and everybody kind of turns with this angry look and saying, you know, they, they come up from their sin, whatever they're doing, and they say, shut the light off, stupid. In other words, we, we like our sin. They rejected the light. And in a similar way, when Christians live holy lives, it condemns and convicts those around them. If you're living a holy life in your home, in your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, I guarantee you the unbelievers that know you are convicted by you. And they feel judged by you, and you've never even confronted them about their sin. But they just feel naturally convicted. It's like the story I heard about a, a, a PGA golfer who apparently lived a very immoral life and was just a drinker and a carouser, and, and uh, one day he got paired up to play in a foursome with Billy Graham. And all of his buddies, true story, all of his buddies were getting a kick out of this, knowing that this guy was going to have to play 18 holes with Billy Graham. And so after the round was over, one of the guy's buddies found him on the driving range just like smashing balls as hard he could. He was so mad. He was so angry after his round of golf with Billy Graham. And so his buddy said, so apparently Billy was pretty hard on you, huh? And the guy said, no, he never said a thing. <laughs> Being around a holy man, right, convicts us. That's what ha- happened with with Abel, Cain and Abel, why did, why did Cain kill Abel? Well, John tells us in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, listen to what it says. Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Those were John's words. And then back in John 15, look at verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And Jesus quoted here from Psalm 35, verse 19, Psalm 69, verse 4, two Davidic Psalms where David was prophesying about how people hated him right, without cause, for no reason. And so Jesus applied this to himself and applied this to us, uh, that, that he knew that the world's senseless hatred of him was simply a fulfillment of prophecy. That the world's hatred for Christ and Christians is irrational. It makes no sense. They have no good reason to hate us. I guess I could have just said that this morning. 
Why does, God, why does the world hate Christians? They have no good reason. <laughs> it, it, it makes no sense. Let's close in prayer. But, but that's essentially what he's saying in verse 25. But let me give you one more reason. Number five, why the world hates Christians is proclamation. Proclamation. We are witnesses to the world. Look at verse 26 and 27. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we've already been introduced to the Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus promised to to send after he returned to heaven. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So now he mentions the Holy Spirit again when the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Even though the world hates Christ and rejects him, the Holy Spirit will continue to convict people of their sin and that the only way to escape God's judgment against their sin is through the saving work of his sinless son, Jesus Christ. And we're gonna see that in the next section, John 16, 8, And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You say, sweet, the Holy Spirit is testifying on Christ's behalf. Let's me off the hook. No, notice verse 27, and you will testify also in conjunction with The Holy Spirit's testimony, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that they had a significant role to play in testifying that he is God's son who who came to save the world from their sin. And God provided the Holy Spirit to empower us and to embolden us in our witness for Christ and enable us to stand strong in the midst of persecution that we experience as a result of our witness for Christ. Acts 1.8, he asked them to remain in Jerusalem, right, so that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost part of the earth. And listen, it didn't take long for those disciples out of the gate there, once Pentecost happened, right, they received the Holy Spirit, man, they were immediately persecuted. They were immediately getting arrested, flogged run out of Jerusalem, killed, beheaded, arrested. I mean, just look at the book of Acts. It's exactly what happened here. According to church tradition, all the disciples who Jesus was talking to here in John in the upper room, all of them, except for John, ended up being martyred. We know John was exiled to the island of Patmos. In fact, the Greek word testify, he will testify about me, you will testify also. That word testify is transliterated in the English language as martyr. And so in light of the opposition and the persecution that Christians face, listen, let's be honest, it's tempting to keep silent about our faith. 
to, to isolate ourselves and our, our families from the world and, and just not witness at all. It's just easier that way. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit wants to use us to testify to a lost and dying world regarding the truth of Jesus Christ. And this should encourage us. This should motivate us. This should inspire us because what this means is that we are never on our own when we're sharing the gospel. We're in partnership with the Holy Spirit, which is encouraging to keep in mind, especially when they're opposing us or blowing us off, and it seems like our witness is ineffective and unfruitful. That we know that that before we ever got to them, the Holy Spirit was working on them, and after we leave them, the Holy Spirit keeps working on them. In other words, it's not all up to us. The Holy Spirit works in and through us to bring people to Christ. We are the vessels that the Holy Spirit uses to testify to the world. I mean, he could have just chose to go around zapping people and regenerating people, but he doesn't. How do people get saved? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And how will they hear without a preacher, a messenger? Guess who that is? Us. Romans 10, 13 and 14. I would guess that our biggest fear or the one thing that holds us back from witnessing is not knowing what to say. Not knowing what to say. Look at Mark chapter 13. And with this we'll close. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus, again, talking to his disciples about what would come in the future. Mark 13, 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. In other words, I'm going to give you divine appointments with some of the highest powers in in the world. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In other words, I'm going to use persecution to spread the gospel throughout the world. And here's the encouraging part in verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Well, that takes all the fear out of witnessing, doesn't it? That it's not you that has to come up with a... Uh, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to speak through you. Listen, the key to enduring the world's hatred and standing strong and courageous in the face of persecution and being bold in your witness for Christ is the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the only way that that people like Leanna and her family, right, and other persecuted Christians can handle it. it. It's not their own strength and their own power. No, it's the Holy Spirit in them. And that same spirit that's in them is in you and is in me. And if they can stand strong for Christ in the midst of what they're dealing with, right, surely we can stand strong for Christ 
here in America. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your wisdom, your power in designing and building the church of Jesus Christ with people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. We know that ever since the church was birthed at Pentecost, Satan has done everything in his power to destroy it through persecution. And so, Lord, this morning we just want to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are experiencing persecution under extreme Islamic and and Hindu and communist regimes. We pray that you'd keep them safe, Father, that you would rescue them from their captors, you would release them from from prison, you would return them to their families, you would sustain spouses and children who are without a, a, a husband or wife. Father, I pray you would speak your truth through these people in such a powerful way that it pierces the hearts of those who persecute them, use their testimony to convict their persecutors of their sin and and show them the incredible value of Jesus Christ by, by how much Christians are willing to suffer for him. And Lord, we just confess that even though we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, we feel so unworthy to be even associated with such extreme devotion that we see in the persecuted church because we've never had to suffer anything close to follow you. And so we can only pray this morning that if our time should come in this country, that we will have the courage to follow their example and to stand fast and true for you and show the world what you are worth, that you are worth more than life itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.